0: Welcome to Public Policy This Week, a well-rounded weekly discussion of policy issues that frame today's American experience.
1: Good morning. It's Friday and you've joined us for Public Policy This Week here on KYMN Radio.
0: Public Policy This Week is dedicated to the honest and open discussion of public policy issues. Each week we take a look at specific policy subjects and we have a guest on the show that are, that's an expert in their
1: field. We do our best to stay away from the politics. Instead, we concentrate on research, on facts, and on the expertise of our guests to help us arrive at well-thought-out, comprehensive, integrated policy solutions to the shared challenges we face in society.
0: Our program runs the gamut on policy subjects, from neighborhood concerns to municipal, state, and national-level issues. Everything is fair game. Our objective is civil, thoughtful dialogue about important policy issues that convey ideas and solutions to move society forward. My name is Rich Larson. I'm one of your hosts for this morning's show. The man sitting across from me is my co-host, Bruce Moreland.
1: And we are joined in studio today by Dr. Reginaldo haslip Uh He is co-founder and CEO of Tree Range Farms, and we're going to learn a lot about that. He's a farmer at Salvaterra Farms. Uh, He's founder and board president of Regenerative Agriculture Alliance and the co-founder of Regenerative Agriculture Solutions.
0: Rehi, welcome to uh, Public Policy This Week on KYMN Radio. It's an impressive bio, sir.
2: Thank you. (laughs) Thanks for the opportunity to be here. Also, it's not doctor. I I prefer (laughs) farmer Rehi. Um, Also... I mean, I do have a college degree in, in, in Guatemala. I'll be licenciado Reginaldo. But even that, no, we don't go with that.
1: Oh, okay. Sorry. So, I I, I okay. promoted you. In a...
2: I know. In fact, I did some some training for professors um, at the St. At Olaf many years ago, and they gave me thank you cards at the end, and all of them said, Dr. Haslet Marquez. like, <laughs> okay, yeah, it's, it's fine. I don't, you know, I, 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 it's fine with me, but... But it is not correct,
1: okay all right so i'd be curious i'd like you to give i didn't have a detailed bio, but I'd be interested in hearing what you know what led you down your path to get to uh, Northfield of all places.
2: well, the path to Northfield is pretty straightforward um, <laughs> Her name is emmy Hazlitt <laughs> and and she is um the love of my life and the reason I came to the United States in the first place and she had gone to St. Olaf, the graduated from St. Olaf. And so our choice for the first place to explore was Northfield. And I was here as the, the first place I ever lived in the U.S. was Northfield, arrived in 1992. And, and after having gone around quite a few places and after having to decide for a permanent place, we came for Circle. And I'll, I'll do that a million times over if I needed to.
1: Wow. Well, we all like Northfield as a place to live, so we're glad you liked it, too.
0: Yes.
2: Love
1: it. Okay, so let's get into our subject today. Our subject is regenerative poultry, and we're going to kind of go through first a little history of chicken farming from backyards to large scale. So how did we progress from a chicken in every garden to these large industrial-scale operations? What what led to that?
2: Well, I think overall we have to thank the uh, human colonizing mentality of always trying to get more and more and more out of everything. I mean, the way the industry, the chicken industry, agriculture industry overall, is not at all different to petroleum, to mining, to forestry. If you think of it, the origins of the current um, large-scale industrial agricultural system has its origins exactly on that, trying to industrialize everything. The, um, the key to understand here is that it's it's a mechanical efficiency that was being pursued, not necessarily better food, not necessarily more nutritious food. Uh, that was doing just fine. In fact, the levels of nutrition, the USDA has reported that it takes up to eight carrots today, for example, To make up for the nutritional density of a carrot before the industrial revolution in agriculture, really, and it is the the same across the board. All industrial foods are are lacking the fundamentals of nutrient density, and so and this is documented again by our own Department of Agriculture. It's not it's not a theory out there or you know an idea. So when you look at this, all of the sectors, whether it was uh, vegetables or or timber or chickens, the the idea was always, can we extract more out of this this specific uh, option out there? And food is is not very profitable at the farm level. I mean, is uh, the farm part is underappreciated, undervalued, so the farmers never really get paid uh, well. And so, if you look at the history of the poultry industry, there were this very smart business people and the the industrial council or the chicken industry council credits credits the origins to this Mrs. Wilmer Steely out of Sussex County, uh, County in Delaware, uh, that started with 500 chickens, uh, in confinement and then did so well that went to 10,000 chickens in a barn and in like three years. And so, yeah, but that story of having this mass scale, backyard industry to a confinement industry came out of the need to get more money out of uh, a livestock. But it's no different than, you know, inventing chainsaws to cut more trees. Uh, it's the same mentality. And that's how we ended up today with 50 to 100,000 or so chickens in confinement facilities for the purpose of extracting more value out of the consumer um, but not necessarily building more value to the farmer, especially. I mean, farmers are still going belly up, even as the chicken industry makes billions. And also, consumers are not getting better chicken in terms of nutritional quality. Animals are being mistreated, environment is being polluted, and the breeds, the diversity of breeds, are being reduced to one or two or a few, a handful that is now being exploited at a large scale. So, when you really think of it, that's how we ended up where we are. is is not a it's not a story that is foreign to any of us. And who doesn't want to get more out of something, right? I mean that's our that's how we built the the largest economies on the planet is by taking and taking more. And so, yeah, that's exactly what we did. We became very mechanically efficient at moving animals through a process by which they are transformed into something we call food. But really, at the end of the day. Um, in, in i'm sure you're going to transition into into why i'm in this space and that's because i'm interested in nutritionally dense food with integrity and all of that and it doesn't mean we have to go back to the all of the backyard but we do have to redesign and reengineer uh the process so that we don't end up on an, on a system that is highly efficient at extracting but completely devoured of all of the fundamentals that we expect when we buy something that we put in our bodies. You
1: know? Yeah, it's often been noted that it used to be the story that it took a barrel of oil to produce a pound of potatoes, and so we've we've injected a lot of extra you know resources into the process of creating our food, and uh, a chicken you know is not just an egg's way of making another egg for us it's a way of converting a whole bunch of of large scale agriculture grains into proteins and it's it seems efficient when you just do some kind of a, some of the calculations but apparently you've come up with a plan that deals with more of the variables that are kind of ignored in the in the industrial model then
2: well if you think of it from a purely scientific perspective um, a farmer really is not a producer of anything. You know, a company that trades in food really is 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 not trading on inert materials, it's training trading energy. And is it's as energy that has gone through processes of transformation from a again, purely scientific and practical understanding of, of what food is, is really a different expression of the planet's energy. That energy is transformed in, you know, it comes from the CO2 in the air, the nitrogen or the ammonia in the air, um, where if you we leave them up in the air, which we are doing more and more of and putting more out there, mm-hmm. that energy actually becomes toxic to us and we can't breathe it, you know, especially ammonia and so on. But all of that energy used to be expressed in many more forms. We are we have been taking out all of those forms of Of energy expression, such as the photosynthetic infrastructure of the planet. We're cutting down that infrastructure, right? So that's the first place where energy is transformed on a mass scale across the planet. That energy then has, that energy transformation process has very specific outputs. So CO2 and um, sunlight and through the process of photosynthesis turns some of that energy into outputs we can harvest, fruits, um, nuts, uh, vegetables, and things like that, that we can harvest directly and eat ourselves, right? But there is a lot of energy that we can't eat, like we can't eat bark anymore, we can't eat leaves from the trees, and so grasses in the field and so on. And this is where the next stage of energy transformation comes into place, which is the activity of the collective animals of the planet that are truly the digestive tract of the planet where we get to, you know, those... All collectively grab that synthetic that um, photosynthetic output in the form of grasses and so on, and microbes and fungi taking a lot of the the, the more complex like cellulose, you know, then breaking down into the glucose and sucrose, fundamental sugars, and and so on, and transforming, transforming, transforming. That's the next stage, and then the third stage of transformation is when those animals then pee and poop and. You know, push seeds and um, disrupt the, the the ground and feed it with this mass scale of sources of nutrients that then feeds the soil biota. those three places is where energy is transformed, and we have no business in the deciding on on the biophysics and the and the chemistry that are associated with that. All we can do is interfere and so what happens is as we think of farming and in my case, how we engineer and design. The farming of the future is not necessarily going back to a few backyard chickens on your backyard, but rather understanding the fundamental largest scale possible at which energy has been transformed by billions of over billions of years and which created the fundamental geo-evolutionary process by which the efficiency of that transformation was defined, and which we have interfered massively by thinking that we somehow can make it better. And so yeah, we can probably improve tremendously the mechanical extraction in the short-term gains, but overall we are squandering the very fundamental infrastructure of the planet. So as farmers, if you look at it from that perspective, we call it indigenous perspective because truly in, embraces the ancestral ways of a lot of communities across the world that, that operated from an indigenous intellect perspective rather than an extractive, traditional, uh, intellectual perspective. And so if we think of it from that perspective, then us farmers are simply stewards of energy transformation processes by which when we optimize those very biophysics and chemistry of the planet, we actually can harvest a lot, like exponentially more energy out of a single space than if you turn it into a monoculture. From that perspective, then you can re-engineer any industry on the planet, any sector of the agriculture industry on the planet. And for us, we chose chickens because, well, heck, I mean, chicken (laughs) already crossed the world on its own. and So why not just take advantage
1: of that? Yes. so you're taking one of the natural pioneers from the animal industry or the animal kingdom yeah i've uh, i've often wondered why i can 't just go out and lay in my backyard and make all the proteins and sugars and carbohydrates that I need just from sunlight and I realized that way back my ancestors shook hands and said we'll produce the sugars and you can consume the sugars and make protein you know so we have this whole food chain structure, and what you 're doing. It sounds like as you're going back to the fundamentals and saying, what is the energy flow and how can I use that energy flow to inform my decision making about good agricultural practice at a large scale? And so you've got mm. large scale done on a small scale, if that makes sense. Uh,
2: um, well, we're not actually interested in small scale because bottom line is that the, the scale is the planet. That's the scale at which we would like to operate because that's the lim—the only limit to the, to the way of thinking that we are promoting is the planet itself. So if that is small scale, sure. <laughs> but um, that doesn't mean that each business has to be super large. But we are talking about large-scale system where, and this is not about biophysics or chemistry, now we are talking about economics and social structuring and governance and so on. The the structuring of each operation can be done, you know, every farmer with one and a half acres all the way to 1,500 acres to 15,000 acres can be part of the same process that we are describing here. So no, we're not talking about, I mean, we're starting with small farms because it just happens that I came to this country with no land, no money, and no inheritance (laughs) to be able to access (laughs) land. And so sure enough, I'm not going to buy 15,000 acres here in Minnesota. But if I could have access to it. We'll manage it the same way. I just have access to 64 acres. And so I'm operating on 64 acres, which a lot of people call small. But when you start thinking about the throughput of energy on 64 acres, it's so massive that, you know, I would gather, and we don't have the scientific data yet, We do have the teams of scientists, and we are tracking this down to the last detail, all the way from greenhouse gas emissions to pounds of meat that are coming out of the space to hazelnuts we are harvesting, weeded and fertilized by the chickens, to elderberries, to timber, to maple syrup, all of those things that when you really operate on the landscape with a mentality and intellectual capacity like we are describing here, then you 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 see the whole picture. And when you actually start capturing the outputs of the whole landscape, it's so massively larger in terms of energy output that even if it takes a little bit more labor, the aggregate cost is so smaller to the aggregate value as compared to the massive aggregate cost of conventionally managing the land to the marginal and very small aggregate value you can acquire from corn and soybeans, for example, just to give an example of mm-hmm. you know how we have come to that conclusion, so mm-hmm. there may be large short term extraction, but not not large aggregate value in comparison to the aggregate cost of that value that we extract, so these are just like we, we really have to start intellectually reckoning with this with this idea that we have this this illusion that somehow it
0: food is cheap and things like that it's like there is no
1: such a thing no such a thing
0: uh for our listeners you're listening to public policy this week on kymn radio am 1080 fm 95.1 broadcasting from beautiful downtown northfield minnesota i'm rich larson uh and your uh, co-host is bruce Moreland. we are talking with uh not dr <laughs> Rahi haslet marquin um bruce cool
1: I'm going to ask you, kind of, what led you to develop your tree range chicken model. In other words, what what motivated you to go down that? And by the way, that's a very clever name, tree range. I like that a lot. (laughs) So, does it have a deeper meaning? Is it what led you to that?
2: Totally, totally. The um, well, I grew up with chickens. The um, my understanding of chickens across the world is is that is the livestock and the protein of the poor. In general, but it's also the most one of the two most uh, nutritious and healthiest non-red meats. So there's fish and there's chicken, and if you you know if you have those two sources of meat protein, um, animal protein, you're actually you're actually set. The difference is that chicken, <clears throat> different from fish, different from other meats, chicken really is accessible to every farmer across the world, and. And just so you know the, the history of the United States chicken industry is, is such that in a short period of time, like fifty years, he was able to take a mass-scale backyard system that was larger than the current system or equal, and turn it into a vertically integrated system that literally decimated the 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 opportunities for for farmers to grow chickens any differently. It, it really sabotaged the credit the 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 innovation on the farm level as far as chicken is concerned for in exchange for a single a single option, right? But if you look at other countries, across Latin America, for example, all of our countries are still on the opposite end. In Guatemala alone, for example, the the, the Ministry of Agriculture uh, cattle ranch and um, and what is it, Ministerio de Agricultura, uh, Ganaria y Alimentación, and food systems. So we, we got quite a different acronym and a different <laughs> kind of scale of coverage. But anyway, MAGA, as it's called, documented that in Guatemala there is over 36 million backyard chickens still owned and operated by over 1 million um, uh, households, 100% of them led and managed by women, by the way. And the industrial system, you know, barely has 25 birds in confinement, which compared to the to the backyard is 11 million under. So we never tipped over in that direction. Okay. And and despite the pressures from outside, the honest truth is that it's way more efficient to have a million backyard flocks as it concerns to delivering food and protein to communities, than it is to have all of this mass confinement that then spend all of the energy from the grain and all of that associated with transporting that, transporting the chicken to processing facilities and then bringing them out to communities. In fact, it's way more efficient mechanically to have those chickens raised almost exactly where they are being consumed. So that is the blueprint that I came into the U.S. with in terms of I also had training in agriculture because I'm an agronomist from the Escuela Nacional Central de Agricultura and is one of the leading schools in Latin America and also from the Universidad de San Carlos Faculty of Agronomy. And so I, I had the conventional training, but I could never reconcile the fact that we were squandering a highly efficient system of food, food system, for a very highly efficient way of extracting wealth. And the two are not the same. And so what I said was, well, I'm coming to the United States, and I have to find my way within the agricultural sector. And one of the ways I figured was people still want highly nutritious, credible food with a system of integrity behind it. And it was starting to grow a little bit, not really fast enough and not really visible enough back when I arrived here. And so I went around and and worked within the sector, but always thinking, when can I get back to the land? And I didn't want to get back to the land until the wave was strong enough that I could ride it, right? Mm -hmm. And so back in 2005, um, and and by the way, I kept uh, tracking the National um, Agriculture Statistics Services annual reports, and I was very specific about what, you know, um, KPIs I was (laughs) observing, you know. um, And so one of them was who owns the land? and how and i was tracking how many of those are non-conventional non-conventional meaning primarily non-white farmers because that's the they are is dominated by mostly you know um anglo descendants uh, of of the folks who took over the land from the natives and so on and that's another story but <laughs> the thing is that it's dominated by that sector of the population which has a very homogeneous way of thinking I was not interested in that. I was interested in who was not thinking that way because that was my space. And it was very small. But in 2005, that whole thing started to change drastically. I mean, it was changing, but that is really the pivoting point. And that's when I started to see that, okay, I got to get back into this space. And so I came back and literally all I did was codified all of what I just described here from a science perspective, managerial perspective, business management perspective, from um, agronomics perspective, social, and so on, even political, so that we could create a new framework, a new narrative, and chicken, because animals in the three stages of energy transformation, Animals are where most of the energy is, 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 tra- is transformed at the fastest uh, speed. Just a quick example. If you take, for example, a, a bale of, of uh, hay, for example, and you put it into a compost pile, it will be nine months before you see soil broken down you know, by microbes. You take that same bale and you feed it to a cow or even a chicken, by the way. It would be forty eight hours before that turns into into some of it turns into manure and pea, and another forty eight hours before microbes have already started metabolizing that and turning into nutrients that go straight to the plants and if you get the, the the bio the the photosynthetic infrastructure on your farm now that transforms even more energy through photosynthesis right so the animals are really the entry point into any ecology on the planet as far as food is concerned, and so for us for me. The chicken is the one that gave me the easiest, fastest, shortest life cycle, shortest economic cycle, the least amount of land blueprint where I could start. So it really was so compatible to the conditions I was living in. And then it's just the light went on and I realized, well, there is over, according to the UN, there's over 700 million farmers w- who own less than 25 acres. And shockingly, they are the ones who produce 70 70% of the food that is consumed on the planet. And we I always thought that it was the industrial system that produced most of the food. But it comes to the, the facts don't support that either. And so I realized, well, chickens is really the thing where we can make this mass scale impact in the food industry if we can succeed at recodifying this ancestral knowledge into a scalable, deployable blueprint. And that's how we came up with the tree wrench because chickens are jungle animals, they belong in the forest, and they belong under the trees, and because of that, tree wrench is just a
0: natural name. Yes. <laughs> it is. That's fantastic. Ray, hey, can I ask you, um, what was it in 2005 that that you saw it changing, that, that gave you your entree? Well, one thing I was watching was the amount of CSAs,
2: I don't know if you know what mm-hmm. that means, community-supported agriculture operations. And... Truly the CSAs and the farmers markets, they are two key indicators that I was watching. I was not interested in doing either one. I already did numbers and I realized, yeah, it sounds great. Uh not where I want to spend a lot of my time because I don't have the ability, the privilege of actually spending that kind of energy on generating that kind of sales and from a business perspective it's just thin that up for me. Mm-hmm. I don't mean it doesn't add up for other people, but for me it didn't. And but it was critical indicators of a changing landscape. So we went from like two CSAs. I the one I remember is forty acres and I or something like that up no, north of the Twin Cities, and then suddenly you had Common Harvest, you got you know all of these other other. Um, a CSA is coming on board. And then we went from like 5 to 100 to 1,000 to 1,500 in a very short period of time. So that was one indicator. The other indicator was that a lot of black and um, in, uh, indigenous and immigrant, especially Latino and, and other immigrants from, all, from other parts of the world, were getting into agriculture at a different scale than before. Different scale in terms of amount of people getting involved all the way from urban gardens, you know, to the actual farms outside of the urban settings. The challenge I saw was that, and and by the way, the USDA defines a farmer as someone who grows a thousand or more dollars, sells a thousand or more dollars of something that people can eat, whether it's vegetables, chickens, or whatever. It doesn't say that you have to grow them on a farm. I mean, on a landscape. You can grow on the rooftop of a building in Minneapolis, and you still And you can still file a Schedule F uh, tax return in your tax returns and be classified as a farmer, according to the USDA, just to be clear. And so the amount of registered farmers and farmer numbers that were not, again, back to the to the dominant white population that or Anglo-Saxon population that oversees and, and owns and controls and governs this sector was growing exponentially. And I needed to see that before I went in, because I, I was not, I wanted to be a pioneer in terms of how we reverse a lot of the mistakes we have made mm-hmm. in terms of engineering, science and technology and social structuring, economic organizing, governance and all of that. But I was not interested in being a pioneer in changing people's minds. And so I wanted people to start changing their minds first okay. so that I could go in. And that was, those were things that I was observing. There was a lot more, of course, there were a registration of larger amounts of acreage in the hands, and or, or at least under the management. So you may be the farm manager, but you're not the owner, for example. Mm-hmm. And that was also changing. And all of that came, well, some of that came from the National um, agriculture Statistics Services of the USDA. Got it. Yeah.
1: I just wanted to uh, go back to the the community-supported agriculture model that I'm familiar with, is primarily you you buy a share in the crop and the the agriculture the farmer if you will grows the crop and you you get to participate in the harvest if there's a good harvest you make you get a lot of food for your money and if there's a bad harvest you've shared the risk so the farmer has a stable income but they the price you get is you you may not get as much food or you may get more food right and so it's kind of a shared risk model, and that's I just want people because we use the term c s a without really explaining right. it right and I just wanted to get that <clears throat> out there um i i really <laughs> I want a t shirt that says tree range chicken farmer <laughs> but anyway. Um, what are the, the key features of your, your operations? And I use the term smaller scale just because I'm thinking of those hundred thousand chickens in a barn scale operations, but your, your operation probably operates at the same number of chickens or is it a lot less or what do you got going
2: on? No, no. I mean, the, the number of chickens per flock, which is the really fundamental differentiator, we will... If we increase the amount of chickens per flock don't, don't, on our current standard, we probably round it up at around two thousand chickens per flock. Okay. Now, right now, our standard is one thousand five hundred chickens per flock, which is a microscopic amount in relationship to industrial farming confinement. Let's put it that way. But um, bottom line is, if the, it's the it's an engineering unit. It's not what a farmer expect to. It, not not what the output of a farm is supposed to be. So the way we structured this and if you're familiar with with um the theory of nation building um is is um it it came out of Harvard University there's a big proponent and and, and an originator of a lot of that Michael Porter. Michael Porter was also a consultant to many countries that came out of war like conditions and or war. Like Guatemala civil war, and he was hired as one of the consultants to restructure the country to help restructure the country, and he pretty much, to my eyes, he layered three fundamental principles of industrial or reorganization. And so, the first one is it to me is the production unit. He thought of it as, as uh, sectors, right? Affinity affinity groups. So honey producers, coffee producers, rural producers, uh, you know, and try to build affinity groups. For me, it was about way, a couple of steps back. It's what is the production unit? So in conventional ag, you understand that the acre is the production unit. And so the yes. acre defines bushels per acre, measurement of output. Uh, nitrogen uh, pounds per acre defines mm-hmm. inputs. Mm-hmm. Uh, payments per acre for subsidies, handouts from the government to corporations to to do more corn and soybeans, for example, is defined by the acre, and so on and so forth. That's the production unit. Well, nature doesn't have a production unit per se, so we needed to reconcile the fact that we still needed a production unit, but we couldn't use the acre because the acres is an arbitrary extractive concept. And so we needed to evaluate how many chickens would sustain their social behavior without manipulation of their beaks, of their claws, or without um, pharmaceuticals to calm them down, or or depriving them of light as a way to calm them. I mean, without any manipulation, what would be the natural, uh, where would the natural balance be? And so I started with uh, with 100 chickens, went to 500, 1,000, 1,500, 2,000, all the way to 2,500. And then the, the breakdown was above 1,500. And so we also realized that the density per square foot of outdoor space where the chickens were ranging during the day. Again, we never ca- come into this space to do confinement poultry. I mean, if you're going to do small confinement poultry, well, you, you just better do it at a large scale. What's the point of doing small scale confinement, right? right so we needed it that. to be free ranged, period. And chickens don't free range well without the trees because that's the natural ancestral habitat. And that's what they are coded for. And so here in Minnesota, we figured, OK, we can build that jungle-like ancestral habitat for the chicken with hazelnuts and elderberries as an understory. And the big woods ecosystem, you know, basswood, maples, hickory, cherry, um, and so on as the overstory. And bam, you got a jungle-like habitat, and so, and then we evaluated the ranging capacity of the flocks, of and then we selected breeds. I mean, this was extensive two years of just day-to-day observations, and that what gave is what gave us the size of the flock. Once we had the size of the flock, the ranging distance, we estimated that it took one and a half acres to get that flock. Rotating back and forth in a way that they didn't decimate the the grasses and the undergrowth um, vegetable um, v- vegetable based growth so forages right mm-hmm. after that, we figured all right, but a production unit at fifteen hundred chickens per flock with the you know kind of weather we get here uh, only gave us space for three flocks that's only four thousand five hundred chickens per production unit meaning per acre and a half and so so we figure, all right, I'm not going to make a living out of 4,500 chickens a year. That's, that's insignificant. And so we started aggregating production units to create what we call the economic unit. And the economic unit then allows us to say, okay, I need to raise 45,000 chickens in a farm. That means I need this many production units. And now we can create a blueprint for farm management. And so 10 production units... It's actually a reasonable number, and that gives you forty-five thousand chickens completely without violating this ancestral principle and without creating large flocks. Mm-hmm. Now, after that, we realize: well, even if I produce forty-five thousand chickens on my farm, you still don't have the the rest of the infrastructure still needs to be assembled. And so it comes to you know the production unit moves to the economic unit, which is the farm, and then moves to the to the economic cluster, which is a region. And in the cluster, you bring in many farm enterprise units, mm-hmm. many farms. Then you you coordinate them and standardize them and coordinate them so that we can then create enough throughput to launch process, a processing facility. And we have done that already. Now, that processing facility isn't going to operate on one farm throughput. It's, it's too small. And so that throughput now allows us to create that economic <laughs> clustering Once the economic clustering is built, then we can create each of those economic clusters, aggregate them across the Midwest, and end up with a redesigned agricultural system as it pertains to poultry. That's, I mean, straightforward out of Harvard University (laughs) theory of nation building. So you can apply that to what we're doing. That's what we did. That's what we came up here. And that's what we are engaged with. That's why I said, yeah, the flock is small. The farm is still very small at 45,000 chickens of uh, production a year. But the system doesn't have to be. In fact, our goal right now is 500 million in 10 regions across the country, and we are now halfway through building the first region out of the 10.
1: So 45,000 birds in a flock, that's more than one flock. You said a flock is about 1,500 to 2,500? Yeah,
2: 45,000 output per farm divided into three flocks of 1,500 per production unit.
1: Okay. So if if you're following, a, a lot of this sounds like a very hierarchical structure where you recognize that each layer is contributing something different, um, and and what you're structuring then, for people that are used to thinking of chicken as the thing that you get in a little bucket called a McNuggets, or or it's the thing that comes in a plastic-wrapped <laughs> bag at the grocery store, you've now heard the entire chicken in you know vertical integration system, including the fact that you have to have a, a facility to manage the conversion of the live bird to the McNuggets or the the the, right. the, the pouch of, of, of meat in your freezer. And it I think it's useful sometimes for us to hear that complexity and then to hear that you are essentially applying Harvard level management tactics to a more reasonable and balanced system is, is kind of exciting. I'm, I think it's pretty cool.
2: I mean, we have to uh, marry ancestral wisdom with modern knowledge. For <clears throat> modern knowledge on its own, we have, in the scientific community, and in the industrial system and governments, have turned modern knowledge into an effective weapon of mass destruction. When you look at the 80% plus thousand chemicals that have been, you know, approved to be applied on the landscape from the fact that 70% of the pharmaceutical antibiotics in this country go to animal uh, confinement production, uh, confinement animal production. I mean, that is really a mass a mass destruction capacity. And so we really have to reconcile with, with what knowledge without ancestral wisdom can do to our current society. And all we have done is marry a lot of the modern advances in science and technology and then tame them down so that they actually meet those needs that we have with integrity. And the only way to do that is to take the colonizer part of our brain and then listen a little bit more to our indigenous, the indigenous intellect that is also part of our innate intelligence and then marry those two so that we are not carried away In either direction, but rather find a balance. And that's that's really where we are at from an intellectual perspective. And so, yeah, I mean, of course, we went and dug up all of the best thinkers in the conventional agricultural sector because, hey, listen, there is nothing wrong with vertical operations. But there is something very wrong about vertical extraction of wealth and then the accumulation in a few people who don't even take the risks while they put the risks on the mass population and socialize the risk while capturing and capitalizing the profit. Now, that's not capitalism to me. That's, That's actually extremism. And so... What we're doing is vertically integrating operations so that we got the operational efficiencies, mechanical, but horizontalizing ownership, controlling governance, so we don't fall into that same trap. And this is what I mean, reconciling ancient ways of m- managing our ourselves as part of the species of the planet, rather as the only one. And then also using modern knowledge to be able to, to improve our understanding of how we do this.
1: Right. As an activist, I know myself, um, I'm constantly aware of the fact that we may develop heuristics that let us do things. But, you know, the Sahara wasn't always a desert. Right. And, and uh, what happened on Easter Island when they cut down all the big trees and they, all of a sudden they, they forgot to look at what was going to happen in the next years. And that kind of messed up their society uh, and then you had the Anasazi, I think it was, in the Pueblo. People know them as the Pueblo Indians uh, who couldn't be prepared for a climate change event that happened on a short enough scale that they had to move away in real time. So this ability to look beyond just... Uh, my, my grandfather was an, I, I, I'm going to use the term, indigenous Irish farmer who came to Minnesota and was taught by the Germans how to do things like tiling and stuff, which changed his relationship to the land. And it's really hard when you have all of your your history is, is one way, and then people are showing you other ways. And if they give you the wrong measure of effectiveness, like if your measure of effectiveness is pounds per dollar of chickens produced instead of healthy chickens, you know, ease the things that you're focusing on, you can end up down a path that you might wish you weren't on. Um,
2: well, you said something that we need to actually st- clarify. You said you're indigenous Irish. <laughs> um, so this is very important because, and, and again, remember, it doesn't matter where we are. Mm-hmm. We're always on indigenous land, native lands. Mm-hmm. So here we are in the land of the Wapihute and we are talking about indigenous, so let's let's honor
1: that. true. Okay I, I, when, I, know, when I met, what I meant by that was his cultural heritage about how to be yes a farmer and, and I am Irish. not
2: invalidating what you said. Right. Uh, what I want to do is ask our ancestors to validate what we just entered here okay. and to to bless the fact that you have that ancestry. I have a, a, a Mayan ancestry. I'm not native to this territory, and I am grateful for the natives who who allowed and who well. Didn't allow, but, didn't allow but, but at the end of the day, learn to, to continue to be indigenous on their native land. Mm-hmm. To me, being indigenous is about who, uh, being indigenous to this planet. We are all indigenous to this planet. We are made of her elements. Mm-hmm. We are made of her energy that has been transformed for billions of years. We are simply an expression of her energy that came through the food, through photosynthesis, to animal interaction with the land, that at the end we take that energy, we put it into our bodies, and our cells are regenerated until they no longer do that, and we go back to her. We're indigenous to the earth. Now, indigenous, as far as intellectually understanding and acting accordingly to our indigenous origin, that is something that mostly Native peoples have preserved. Most non-native peoples have come into the, the natives' people's space for the purpose of conquering and colonizing and abandon their indigenous ways. Mm. But we are all indigenous at the end of the day, and many are native, and we greatly honor and appreciate the fact that we are here on native land of the of the Lakota, the Wapihute and. And and so on. So I just wanted to make sure that that gets uh, expressed properly because otherwise it may sound like you are appropriating something, and it is not true. I didn't
1: really want to do that. I I should have used the Irish culture that he came from. That was that was, if I may
0: say, that was exceptionally well said. Thank you for that. I appreciate it.
1: Okay. So one of the reasons I was excited to get you in here was. You are hosting the second annual Regenerative Poultry Convergence on the 23rd and 24th of March. Uh, Can you tell us a little bit about that, including who should attend and uh, what will they see and what will they learn?
2: Yeah, so we're co-hosts. Tree Ranch Farms, which is the company I head now, um, is co-hosting with an organization I founded in 2019 called the Regenerative Agriculture Alliance. Diane Beck is the director of the Alliance and her and she with um with um Beck ersek and their their team have been leading and in, ho- in hosting uh they are pr- the principal hosts now the this is the second event it's a convening a converging of all of the people organizations partners investors markets you know community members who have endorsed what we are doing in this region who have participated, invested, and even buy the product. You can buy tree-range chicken now at Just Food Co-op, for example. Uh, You can buy it at Seward Co-op. All of this, this is the place where all of us, participating in this new way of thinking, of relating, of being, of knowing, uh, come together to study what we have done, to celebrate what we have done, to study what we need to do, and to participate to the extent that we eat chicken. (laughs) I mean, of course, if... If you just eat, uh, you know, use the maple syrup from the trees that the chickens help us grow, you are welcome too. If you are eating the hazelnuts from the farms where the chickens are harvesting and you know are weeding and fertilizing those hazelnuts, then you are part of our poultry system. You don't have to eat chicken, but we appreciate if you if you do because that's where the <laughs> bottom line uh, is is met, and that's how we finance the system. The convergence again is this place where all of us are interested in this way of doing things come together, one, for the purpose of learning from each other. So I'll be there learning from the scientists. The scientists will be learning from the farmers. Farmers will be learning from everybody else. Consumers, I mean, if you just buy our chicken at the co-op, uh, you can come in there to meet the people who make that possible, to learn more about where your chicken comes from and what does it mean to work collectively to achieve this larger-scale impact and to build larger-scale systems that actually have the ability to replace the conventional ways that we think and do agriculture. This is what it's about. So it's not just a a that's why we don't call it a conference right. because it's a convergence of everybody interested. So everyone is invited. The 23rd and 24th of March will be the the like classroom like gathering sessions, workshops, panels, and so on. We will be at the Grand on Friday night. That community is invited to that event. Of course, it's it's limited as you know, but we hope that those listening will hurry up and call the Regenta Cultural Alliance and get their spot reserved. Uh, the other days, we'll be at the White Center. We are co- coordinating with Carlton for the locations. And, um, and again, you can participate on the 25th, Saturday the 25th, after the, 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 the gatherings here are done. We'll have farm tours, and uh, we'll be out on my farm, and Salvatierra Farm, out on Highway 19, uh, next to the apple orchard down on Baldwin on Bridgewater Township, which I know you are you are uh, <laughs> is home to you.
1: Yes. And indeed.
2: so we are turning that that farm, Salvatera farm, into the 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 uh, pinnacle of our, the, the demonstration, premier demonstration farm where people can come and observe everything we're doing on a single spot all the way from the chicken raising, the tree planting, the agritourism, the maple syruping, to the alley cropping, to the extensive hazelnut plantings where there is no chickens, mm-hmm. to also the Dorper sheep grazing, which is incorporated behind uh, on the si- on the areas where the chickens don't, don't range. And all of that captured, encapsulated into one site. That's Salvatera Farm for you. That will be on the 25th. And then again, 23rd and 24th of March, we'll be out here in the classrooms and gathering up. And everybody's in, 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 invited to be part of that as long as they are interested in their food system.
1: Okay. I, I may ask you to repeat that closer to the end very carefully so that people <laughs> will know where to go get that information. Um, I, I want to transition kind of into policy that can help because we are a policy-oriented <clears throat> program. And how do policies that support the, uh, I'll, I'll call it industrial chicken raising community, how does that hurt people that are trying to do tree range chickens? I mean, are you at a disadvantage because of regulations? Uh, what, what, or is it basically a wash? It doesn't really affect you.
2: Well, yes. I mean, policy is the way we have manipulated the transformation of the landscape for many decades now. I guess I would say uh, centuries. Um, and so it does tremendously affect i mean sometimes something we are doing here can be undone with the with the signature of a new policy so um, I think the biggest the biggest issue we are facing is that in our system we have to we we are really bootstrap and we are walking our own talk uh with very very little um uh policy support institutional infrastructure support. And, you know, while the industrial system gets to be making decisions at the capital, both state, local, local county levels all the way to the federal level, you know, they have entrenched themselves so heavily that they have captured an incredible amount of wealth that comes through the Farm Bill and dedicated that wealth. You know, we're talking about over $850 billion that are authorized To go primarily to conventional agriculture, which then disrupts the ability for us to operate on the basis of market forces and fair market conditions. So we have to operate according to the market forces while the conventional system doesn't because it has made the government its primary source of profits while we make our profit by bringing the product through a legitimate market-based system. And that is probably the biggest disadvantage we have, but it's not a disadvantage of us. It's an intellectual disadvantage of our leaders not to understand that we're shooting ourselves in the foot by doing that.
1: And I got to jump in and say, as a conservative, I'm always annoyed by crony capitalism that uses the power of the state to privilege some industry over others. And that's why I'm glad to hear that you're doing all of your work the way you are. I think you're, you're reaching into to the ground level. You're reaching into the people at their heart level. Um, I love the, the, the visual that you've just given us of an overstory providing maple for maple syrup, an understory providing hazelnuts and elderberries, and the whole thing being supported by the tree range chickens that are fertilizing and keeping the bugs down and doing all the work that they do on the behalf. I mean, it's just such a beautiful vertical picture. I, I, I appreciate your having expressed that for us. Um, I have another question specific to Minnesota, uh, which is this a bipartisan bill called the, uh, what is it, the Cottage Food exemption modification. Have you looked yeah. at that? What What is that about, and is it designed to help CSA style farming and your style farming, or is it is it mostly about milk production? I understand there's a heavy component for, for uh, raw milk.
2: Production. Right, but it's not. It's not uh, limited to raw milk. Is is? I mean, I don't know if there's any specific legislation for something like that, but you know, mostly. In this case, cottage industry really referred at anything that is that is not part of the conventional industrial system. And so you are seeing as niche as cottage uh, if you are outside of that conventional system. So from that perspective, it could, but the bottom line is that those numbers they are looking at, you know, like the the, the limitation of sales, you know, 85,000 or less in a calendar year. I mean, my farm alone is, a, a you know, $600,000 a year farm is oh. it, I mean we are not conventional we are completely outside, we are small by all means and definitions um, but definitely we are not cottage and we are not interested too much on the individualistic nature of cottage which by definition is you doing your own thing on your own farm and then you being exempt from the conventional rules that apply to everybody else that's great and that's awesome if that's the space you are in. And and I think we need that because it incentivizes that innovation at the farm level. But unless those innovations are cataloged and codified into standardized systems, such as we've done with the poultry system, then you stay as a cottage industry. And we're not interested in that space being segregated to just being in that space. And that's why, even though each of our farms qual- would qualify as a cottage industry— uh, as a system, we are really pursuing something totally different. Right. Now, the place where it benefits is because in, our, in the structuring of our system, fair trade principles are central. It's the same as social justice and all of that, that comes into social justice understood from you not being abused unfairly. Right not being unfairly trade um treated uh, just because of the color of your skin and things like that we're not talking about the larger context of of other other issues going on in the in the in the country but basically in the agricultural sector, there is a lot of injustice towards workers it doesn't matter if you're white black or 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 uh, latino or poor for the most part you are going to be poor if you are laboring in the food system mm-hmm. and so the the injustices there are Quite entrenched, and so to the extent that we can we can man- manage the the system in a way that is fair to everyone, that's what we are doing. And so when it comes down to understanding all of that, one of the things we codified into the into the regional the poultry system, and we are implementing through the multiple institutions that we we have built, one of those components is ensuring that there is fade fair uh, compensation and fair relationships, one of those elements of codifying that is ensuring that the farmers own their flocks from the beginning to the end. Even if we are financing them from tree range, they still hold ownership. And one of the things they can do is bring their chickens, say you you raised 10,000 or 13,000 chickens. So you take 10,000 of those, you commit them to the brand, tree range, Chicken, so we can market that on the larger scale system, and then you keep three thousand. That qualifies you as a cottage industry. And now, because you you own those chickens, but you raise them as part of a systematic process that makes them more efficient. That means you got a larger margin on those chickens because you didn't just raise three thousand; you raised thirteen thousand. And on top of it, you're a part of the system, which gives you um, access to a much more Uh, Affordable way of processing because you are contributing to the system. Now you can benefit from the system. If you hired us to just process your chickens, we have to charge you more because there is no benefit to the system. Mm. But if you brought ten thousand to the system and kept three thousand, those three thousand chickens you kept are now way more affordable because you didn't pay the higher rates for processing. That then, if if you individually want to go and to the farmers market CSAs and do more of the cottage style. Now this law can benefit on the second layer, all of our producers. So we are definitely going to capitalize on all of these small, you know, I mean, I don't want to say insignificant because they are not insignificant, but truly in the context of agriculture policy, these things really don't amount to much. It's really not even a drop in the bucket. But you know what, in the conditions we are of this intellectual poverty and you know, spiritual poverty that, that defines how we approach the landscape and the relationships among each other and policy, well, it's a great deal because at least it's an example and we can build on that and we will build on that. But right now we have to read it and take it at face value and we're very pragmatic. We're not just going to go out there and just make a big celebration out of a policy like that. Um, we will pay attention and we will go back and talk to those legislators and say, okay, so are you understanding what we mean now? Can we do the real thing now? You know, can we move beyond this, this, you know, yeah. I mean, I'm trying (laughs) to find the words not to put this down, but also not to make it such a big deal that people think we have solved the problem because we are so infinitely far from solving the problem.
1: And one of the problems we have is that we're going to run out of time. But I warned you before we started that I had a question for you that I thought you'd enjoy. And that (laughs) is, what has Hollywood done to help your cause? Is there a movie out there that we should all watch to learn a little bit about? Not necessarily poultry farming, but just maybe small scale or or different scale, non-industrial scale farming. uh, Or something like that. Is there a movie out there that you'd like us to watch?
2: Well, Bruce... (laughs) <laughs> Don't take it the wrong way, but kiss the ground. <laughs> that's kiss the, the ground? One, that's the one you want to watch. There you go. Kiss the ground. All right. You know, and um kiss the ground is is going to open your eyes to so many of the things we're talking about here at a at a more global scale, more validated, more scientifically backed, evidence-based and so on and and it's fun to watch. Uh, just don't get depressed by the bad parts. We're doing really well, and we will solve those big problems if we get together and and actually push forward for, for, for a better way of understanding and working with the landscape.
1: Okay. And one last question. Can you remind us how we can sign up for the convergence and how we can learn more?
2: Yes. Just go to Regen Ag Alliance, so R-E-G-E-N-A-G Alliance, Regen Ag Alliance, Dot org and a, a window will pop up and you can just click on it and you'll be ready to go
1: there you go folks All right. well again rich you want to close this yeah
0: out? Uh, this has been another phenomenal uh interesting conversation and ray i do hope that you will come back and 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 talk to us more about things because the way you 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 capture things and the way you explain things is just I'm a little (laughs) mind-blown this morning, but uh, this is where we must part uh, and end our program today.
1: Okay. Be sure to join us for next Friday's edition of Public Policy this week where we'll be discussing science and technology policy, spurring investment and growing the economy. Uh, And for now, have a fantastic Friday and a superb weekend. Take care, everyone.
2: Enjoy the high temperatures.
1: You've been listening to Public Policy This Week.
0: Tune in every Friday morning at 10 a.m. for more conversation with policy experts. Remember, this show can be found on your favorite podcast platform or stream it from KYMNradio.net.